Jeff Bezos left a lucrative job on Wall Street to pursue his idea of the everything store. The industry giant Amazon started merely as an idea floating through the offices of an unusual firm on Wall Street, D.E. Shaw & Co. Desco. Desco was founded in 1988 by David E. Shaw, a former professor at Columbia University who channeled his love for computers and mathematics into exploiting patterns in global financial markets. Desco operated differently from other similar companies, and its employees were mostly scientists and mathematicians rather than financiers. They were expected to apply the power of technology and computers to finance in a scientific way. One of such employees of the company was Jeff Bezos. Before he joined Desco, he was already contemplating leaving Wall Street altogether. But a headhunter convinced him to meet with executives at just one more financial firm, one with an unusual pedigree. Luckily enough, it was perfect for him as it encouraged the kind of workplace lifestyle he needed. From the manner in which they recruited to the idea of the non-stop workday, D.E. Shaw was finely tuned to Bezos' mindset. And there he met the woman who would become his life partner, Mackenzie Tuttle. Bezos quickly rose through the ranks at Desco, and in 1994, when the possibilities of the Internet began to reveal itself, Shaw appointed him to spearhead the effort to exploit it to the company's advantage. Shaw and Bezos would meet for a few hours every week to discuss ideas for this new technological wave, and thereafter, Bezos would investigate the feasibility of those ideas. On one of such occasions, the duo discussed an idea that they termed the Everything Store, an internet company that served as the intermediary between customers and manufacturers, and sold every type of product all over the world. Bezos started researching the feasibility of the Everything Store, and he concluded that it was impractical at the time. So, he made a list of 20 possible product categories, and the one that stood out to him was books, an unlimited selection of them in a true superstore. Captivated by the idea of selling books on the internet and seeing it as a huge, untapped opportunity, Bezos knew it would never be his company if he pursued the venture inside D.E. Shaw. So, he had to leave his comfortable home on Wall Street. The idea of leaving a lucrative job sounded absurd to many people, particularly his parents. However, he knew that he would regret not tapping into the opportunities of the Internet early on. So, he spoke to Shaw and made plans to leave the company. He and his partner both set out to work on his idea, thus writing an entrepreneurial origin story that would be imprinted on the collective imagination of millions of Internet users and hopeful startup founders. The giant technology company Amazon started out in Bezos' garage it's easier to invent the future than to predict it. Tilda Allen K. Jeff Bezos first named his company Cadabra Inc., but his first lawyer, Todd Tabbert, pointed out that it sounded like cadaver over the phone. So, he and his wife, Mackenzie, started brainstorming, and they considered names like Awake.com, Browse.com, and even Relentless.com. They even went ahead to register these domains. However, in late October 1994, he poured through the dictionary and had an epiphany when he reached the word Amazon, Earth's largest river, Earth's largest bookstore. On November 1, 1994, he registered the new URL Amazon.com. In the first few months of the company, Bezos, his wife, and their founding employee, Shell Caffin, worked out of Bezos' garage in Seattle. Caffin started learning how to code a website, Mackenzie handled the finances, and Bezos learned all he could about selling books. Everything was done on a threadbare budget. Bezos first backed the company himself with $10,000, then he got an additional $84,000 in interest-free loans. 
Later, he got his parents, Jackie and Mike Bezos, to invest $100,000 but he told them there was a 70% chance they could lose it all. In the spring of 1995, Bezos and Caffin sent links to the Beta website to a few friends, family members, and former colleagues. While the site wasn't much to look at, they had accomplished a lot. Caffin's former co-worker, John Wainwright, decided to try the service and he bought a science book by Douglas Hofstadter titled Fluid Concepts and Creative Analogies. Today, he is credited with making the very first purchase, and there's a building on Amazon's Seattle campus in his name. Each order during those early months brought a thrill, even though they were only making a tiny profit on it. When someone made a purchase, a bell would ring on Amazon's computers, and everyone would gather to see if anyone knew the customer. In July 1995, they made the website visible to all web users and word spread about this new store that offered even the most esoteric books. The first week after the official launch, they got $12,000 worth of orders and the week after, they took $14,000 in orders. But they were only able to ship about $8,000 worth of books. The high number of orders meant every employee had to work long hours, while he and his employees worked exceedingly long days. Bezos was always thinking about raising money. So, he decided to pitch to investors, and he told them the same thing he told his parents, the company had a 70% chance of failing. Nonetheless, he was able to raise the amount he needed, and those who refused to back him at the time would later regret the decision. With the influx of fresh capital, the company upgraded its software and servers, and also brought in new talents. Everyone worked tirelessly to the tune that there was an unspoken assumption that no one would take the weekend off. Bezos had always believed in the idea of personalizing the site for each visitor, and it was time to do that. They developed a system called Similarities that grouped together customers who had similar purchasing history and recommended books that would appeal to people in each group. Bezos believed that this would be a great advantage of online bookstores over offline competitors. Bezos always had the idea of rapid expansion, because he believed that was the way to outperform competitors and prevent the big dogs from swooping in. One of such big dogs was Barnes & Noble, a company that had been years into the book business and was much bigger than Amazon at the time. They first proposed a partnership but when Bezos rejected it, they decided to create their own website BarnesAndNoble.com. This only fueled the drive of the Amazon team who would then outflank the bookseller by rapidly expanding into other product categories. With the leadership of Bezos, Amazon made bold and daring decisions. Bezos gave a presentation at Harvard Business School to some graduate students who then dissected his business and concluded it had no real future, but Bezos told them time would tell. After the presentation, only a few students spoke to him, unlike the other speakers. But some of those who had a conversation with him would later become the first business school graduates hired at Amazon. They became a handy resource at a critical juncture in the company's history. These Harvard graduates were tasked with researching different categories of products that Amazon could expand to. They presented their findings and the company executives chose music as the first expansion target, and DVDs as the second. At this point, the website's motto changed from Earth's largest bookstore to books, music and more, and soon after, to Earth's biggest selection, the everything store. Amazon kept making daring decisions, one word that was used recurrently at the time was bold. The company made decisions based on long-term prospects of boosting free cash flow and growing market share rather than short-term profitability. Bezos' ambitions were larger than anyone had suspected, and this became very clear when he started hiring Walmart's executives. 
This created a rift between Walmart and Amazon but also caused plenty of uncomfortable friction within Amazon itself. However, Bezos believed he embodied the qualities that the late Walmart founder, Sam Walton, wrote about, that a Walmart-type story could still occur and it would only take someone who wants it badly enough to do what it takes to get there. Amazon took on a number of projects and acquired various companies, but most of them resulted in huge losses for the company. At a point, the management team began to entertain fear that Bezos, still a young and volatile 35-year-old, needed help in leading the company. So, they asked him to search for a chief operating officer. Believing the company should have as many experienced managers as possible, Bezos warmed to the idea, and they brought Joe Galley Jr. on board. Sadly, this decision would turn out to be a grave mistake as it led to a leadership crisis within the company. Galley started agitating to be CEO and the board considered asking Bezos to step down. It took the intervention of a Silicon Valley legend, Bill Campbell, to resolve the issue, he recommended to the board that they stick with their founder. Bezos steered Amazon through the troubling times of the dot-com collapse. The turmoil in Amazon's management was only the start of a much longer test of faith. During the years of the dot-com bust 2000 and 2001, Amazon stock peaked at $107 and began to nosedive. People started losing faith in the company and this led Bezos to shift gears. Instead of get big fast, the company adopted a new mantra, get our house in order. Yet the dot-com collapse took its heavy toll and there was a dramatic exodus from the company. In the face of all these, Bezos never showed anxiety. Instead, he redefined Amazon for the rapidly changing times. Around that time, there was a member of Wall Street who started making negative predictions about the company's future. The prediction generated sensational headlines and investors became all the more wary of Amazon stock, making it fall by another 20%. There was the danger of Ravi's assessment becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Bezos countered this by cultivating a massive media presence and telling the world that Ravi's assessment was pure unadulterated hogwash. Through all of the downs, Bezos remained focused and he pushed his employees beyond their limits. His obsession with the customer experience made him set seemingly improbable standards, and he would lash out at employees who failed to meet them. Every technology company seeks to become a platform for other companies and Amazon also tried to do this. This led them to develop a new initiative called Marketplace, that allows other merchants to sell their products on Amazon's website. Marketplace quickly caused controversy within the company as managers realized they could now lose a sale to a competitor within their own store. This made it more difficult to achieve the lofty goals Bezos set for them. But Bezos would only make it worse by declaring that if a third-party seller beat their price, then they had to find out how they did it. Bezos met with Jim Sinegal, the founder of Costco, a company that had a reputation for offering amazing prices, and this made him even more unyielding about his stance that Amazon needed to offer the lowest prices. This also led to the introduction of a service called the Free Super Saver Shipping, which offered users free shipping for orders above a certain amount. Not everyone was happy with this, and over the next year, many Amazon executives would leave but Bezos never despaired over it. The success of Bezos may be partly attributed to the circumstances of his childhood. Jeff Bezos' tenacity and the fierce competitive streak is best understood by veering into the past to the circumstances of his early childhood. For a brief period early in his life, he lived alone with his mother and grandparents. 
This was after his mom Jackie left his biological father, Ted Jorgensen, an inattentive dad and husband who had a habit of drinking too much. After some time, Jackie started dating Miguel Bezos, a migrant who was sent to America by his parents so he could escape the volatile situation in Cuba at the time. The duo met while working as clerks at the Bank of New Mexico. They both hit it off and got married in April 1968. Miguel had a tireless work ethic which helped him rise from being just a migrant from Cuba to a top executive at Exxon. Jeff's grandfather, Pop Gies, retired from the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission to a ranch in Texas. He had a do-it-yourself impulse for almost everything, from repairing windmills to castrating bulls. He would enlist the help of young Jeff in his DIY activities anytime he came visiting. Bezos' mom, dad, and grandfather all played significant roles in his life. His mom nurtured his passions and supported his pursuits. His dad set a good example for him in terms of work ethic and discipline. And the summers spent on his grandfather's ranch instilled in him the values of self-reliance and resourcefulness. It is undeniably true that from Jeff's earliest years, his parents and teachers recognized that he was different, unnaturally gifted, but also unusually driven. His childhood was a launching pad, of sorts, that sent him toward a life as an entrepreneur. Bezos sought to reduce communication by emphasizing decentralization and independent decision-making within the company. As Amazon became a larger and more complicated business, Jeff Bezos realized that he would need to count on someone to tame the growing chaos inside the company's walls. The person he turned to was a young executive named Jeff Wilkie, whose cerebral and occasionally impatient management style mirrored his own. Wilkie joined the company as vice president and general manager of worldwide operations, and soon he transformed many of the company's processes, making them more efficient. He exhibited a style, leadership by example, augmented by a healthy dose of impatience, that was positively Bezosian in character. Wilkie was promoted to senior vice president a little over a year after joining Amazon. Jeff Bezos had found his chief ally in the war against chaos. Bezos' behavior of being very critical of employees was often easier to accept because he was so frequently on target with his criticism, even in areas where he had very little experience. He never subscribed to conventional ways of doing things and he made this very clear to his employees, calling Amazon the unstore. Bezos instilled in the team the idea that communication was a sign of dysfunction. He ran Amazon with an emphasis on decentralization and independent decision-making. That would come to represent something akin to the conventional wisdom in the high-tech industry. Bezos defined Amazon as more than a bookseller or a retailer, but a technology company. Bezos was certain Amazon needed to define itself as a technology company instead of a retailer, so he started hiring technologists and giving them obscure job titles like chief scientist and chief algorithms officer. One of such additions to the company was Udi Manber, a former computer science professor. Upon joining Amazon, Manber proposed a service called Search Inside the Book that would let customers look for specific words or phrases from any book they had purchased. Bezos loved the idea and set him to the task. In October 2003, Amazon introduced the feature, and for the first time in a long time, there was a featured story on the company in Wired magazine, celebrating the significant innovation. Bezos also hired Cal Raman, a whip-smart, tireless worker who had a reputation as an exceedingly demanding manager. Raman pushed to build systems that finally realized Bezos' vision of Amazon as a company with data at its heart. 
Bezos bought into the web's new culture of openness and he tasked a group within the company with creating a set of APIs to let developers plug into the website. This was the beginning of a serendipitous journey into what is known today as Amazon Web Services, a platform that enables developers and companies to build sophisticated and scalable applications. The emergence of Amazon Web Services was transformational in a number of ways. It facilitated the creation of thousands of internet startups, ushering in a new era of innovation in many fields. Finally, after years of setbacks and internal rancor, Amazon was unquestionably a technology company, what Bezos had always imagined it to be. Bezos transformed a failed idea into one that revolutionized the world of Reading. In the late 90s, two friends, Martin Eberhard and Mark Tarpening, postulated that it might finally be possible to invent a computer for reading digital books. They proposed to work with Bezos on the idea, and although he was impressed with what they had done, other things would prevent them from working together. Eberhard and Tarpening partnered with others, brought the idea to reality, and it got off to a really good start. However, things went sideways later and the company had to fold. Bezos watched the rise and fall of the company with more than passing interest. He believed that at some point in the future, the vast majority of books will be in electronic form, and if Amazon didn't lead the world into the age of digital reading, then their competitors would. Therefore, he set his employees to the task of creating an e-book device that could disrupt Amazon's own successful bookselling business. The result of this effort was Amazon Kindle. Bezos appreciated those who performed excellently, he occasionally showed a softer side when necessary. Bezos worked his subordinates to exhaustion, supplied little in the way of corporate creature comforts, and allowed many key personnel to leave without showing any remorse. But he was also capable of deeply gracious and unexpected expressions of appreciation. A good example was when Rick Dalzell, his longtime right-hand man, decided to retire. Four months into his retirement, Bezos planned a surprise celebration for him in appreciation of his longtime service. In the years to come, Amazon battled with its competitors, those who sought to take their business and those whose businesses they sought to take. A reason for the incessant battles was Amazon's desire for everyday low prices and their need to negotiate deals that weren't really favorable to others. One of such cases was with book publishers who became troubled after Amazon set its price for ebooks at $9.99, a move that helped the company consolidate its control of the market. Book publishers thought that wasn't good for them, and they considered different ways to get themselves out of the mess. Led by Steve Jobs, giant technology company, Apple, decided to step into the scene. Jobs knew that Amazon could use its dominance in ebooks to transition to other kinds of digital media. Jobs himself had used the iTunes monopoly in digital music to expand into podcasts, movies, etc. So Apple began reaching out to publishers as Jobs was preparing for the introduction of the iPad. They were able to negotiate a deal with book publishers and wrestled them out of Amazon's tight grip. Naturally, Amazon's response was fierce, but under a barrage of criticism for making authors and customers collateral damage in their fight, Amazon relented. Bezos defined how he wanted Amazon to be perceived by the world. During the years of conflict with competitors, Jeff Bezos sat down to consider a vital question, would Amazon continue to be viewed as an innovative and value-creating company that existed to serve and delight its customers, or would it increasingly be seen as a monolith that merely transferred dollars out of the accounts of other companies into its own gilded coffers? Bezos wrote up his thoughts in a memo titled, Amazon, Love, and shared it with his executives. 
It laid out a vision for how the founder wanted his company to conduct itself and be perceived by the world. Bezos applied his analytical sensibility to parse out why some companies were loved and others feared. His conclusions laid out at the end of the Amazon, Love Memo, were aimed at increasing Amazon's odds of standing out among the loved companies. Being polite and reliable or customer-obsessed was not sufficient. Being perceived as inventive, as an explorer rather than a conqueror, was critically important. Bezos encouraged disagreements and codified it into the company's principles. Despite the scars and occasional bouts of post-traumatic stress disorder, former Amazon employees often consider their time at the company the most productive of their careers. Their colleagues were smart, the work was challenging, and frequent lateral movement between departments offered constant opportunities for learning. The people who do well at Amazon are often those who thrive in an adversarial atmosphere with constant friction. Bezos abhors what he calls social cohesion, the natural impulse to seek consensus. He'd rather have his minions battle issues out in arguments backed by numbers and passion. He has codified this approach in Amazon's leadership principles, the company's highly prized values that are often discussed and inculcated into new hires. Conclusion In the years to come, Jeff Bezos will do what he has always done. He will attempt to move faster, work his employees harder, make bolder bets, and pursue both big inventions and small ones, all to achieve his grand vision for Amazon, that it be not just an everything store, but ultimately an everything company. Amazon is just getting started, it will keep growing, manifesting the constitutional relentlessness of its founder and his vision. And it will continue to expand until either Jeff Bezos exits the scene or no one is left to stand in his way. Try this, identify three to five key principles from the leadership style of Jeff Bezos that you can apply in your life and work. Put them into practice and start writing your own success story.